in this episode, episode 18, we decided to do something a little bit different. The team thought that as last month was Mental Health Awareness Month, we should look at some of the clips from some of the guests that we've had this year who've spoken about this topic. In fact, most of them have. But what we've done today is taken a few of those clips and put them together in a bit of a compilation episode. So today you're going to hear from Dr. Sean Barkley, Hugh Hutchison, who's an Olympic skier, Sarah Devereaux, who's a coach and entrepreneur, Tony Christensen, who's achieved so many different things, uh, broken records and climbed mountains and done all sorts of things, despite being a double amputee at the age of nine. Kevin Bigger, who's an adventurer, been to the South Pole and climbed Everest. Lee Murray, who's an internationally recognized and awarded horror writer. And MP Todd Muller. And finally, Sophie Maud, an up-and-coming star on the New Zealand music scene. So you'll hear from these guests about what they have to say about mental health and the awareness of it. And so I hope if this is the first time that you've seen these guests speak on this topic, that you enjoy it. And if it's uh, the second time you've seen it, repeat. Well, hopefully it'll reinforce some of the messages that they had to provide. I hope you enjoy the episode. Um, when you look at the numbers, more people are consulting doctors now than any time in history. Um, but we've we've conquered, in, at least in in the West anyway, let's, let's talk about the West for a moment. I, I know a little bit more about that. We've conquered some of the real hard issues there, like clean water and, uh, you know, overcrowding and not having our children work in coal mines and, yeah. you know, some of the, you know, and, and uh, wastewater and sewerage, all those things we've conquered. And so a lot of the things that were killing off our forefathers are no longer a problem. And yet uh, the population visits doctors more than any time in history. And so they explored that. And and they, they sort of had to determine that it was an anxiety about health, was as which is in itself is a health condition yeah. uh, that that uh, you know the modern person seems to suffer most from. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not an unreasonable or irrational concern because if you listen to s- statisticians, and I can feel it. Tra- you know, we're going to go on a tangent here. I can feel it. <laughs> you know, if we look at the st- st- statistics, you know one in four New Zealanders will get cancer. Not necessarily uh, you'll die from it, but will get either a skin cancer or another minor cancer in their lifetime. So to say to people, look, don't worry, when, you know, that's 25, you know, that's that's silly. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you have to go at probability of actually dying from, from cancer. Mm-hmm. You know, when there's things like quad bikes you can fall off and mm-hmm. a whole your probability is is probably a lot less than the you know the stats would suggest um, yeah. and so it's the way you present information to the public and i read a book called a drunkard's walk um i don't know if i've told you this before so forgive me if i'm repeating the story it's a brilliant book but it was written by an a ucla mathematician and he was fed up with the way statistics were being used and he felt that 
probability maths was a better way of presenting risk, like the insurance companies do. Mm -hmm. They look at this. And would you believe it was a medical episode that that was the the sort of inspiration for the book? Whereas he went and had an HIV test, and he and he mentions this in the book, um, and was told by his by his general practitioner that he had a one in ten chance of having HIV. Uh, because that's what the stats were for false positives. You know, when when the author said, "Look, you know, I'm, you know, there's no chance of this unless it's a, a shot from the blue. It, it's somebody's." In, while I was sleeping, somebody did something to me. But um, but uh, and and he knew that that was incorrect mathematically speaking, mm. and it made merely because it created unnecessary anxiety for a minute. But when he started to explore it from a mathematical point of view, he discovered that his probability of having HIV in his his group of risk, at-risk kind of people, which is that he had no risk, he wasn't in a high-risk category is what he's saying, it was more likely one in 100. See, which was, you know, one in 10 to one in 100, which immediately would ease anybody's anxiety, you see. And so anxiety is a key driver of visiting doctors and and the only thing that you can counter that with is good information we're back to the whole COVID thing again and how you present information to people and and unfortunately our leaderships and and I don't know is it only leaders or organizations or who it is but statistics are the thing that they tell you about and you, and a lot of statistics are scary but but when you look at the probability of anything going wrong, I mean, you can't have it both ways. You can't sort of be anxious about health, but then say to the world that actually, in in a lot of developed countries, you know, the age of death is is stretching out further and further, and and I hope to live, you know, I hope to live to a ripe old age. There was a newspaper report that sort of just hit on the mark, and I was quite pleased to read it because it meant that that many of my other colleagues felt similar to me, was that the Medical Council keeps telling GPs to take care of themselves. It's like it's our responsibility to take care of ourselves. And if we don't do it, we get into trouble. It's like, better take care of yourself, otherwise we're going to come after you, and we're going to not let you practice. But they'd never comment about great, the system. Great motivation. Yeah. Never about the system in which you work where it's almost impossible mm. to take care of yourself because... The whole system is geared to GP seeing more and more patients for less and less money. It, it's just prevalent in the model we have. It's um, and unless you want to take a cut in pay, and in a, work in an isolated place, it, it it doesn't look like it's going to change. But you're responsible for your own mental health. It's almost impossible to, without the time to do that. Um, and um, but they, they sort of link it almost like an eth you have an ethical obligation. So if you're not taking care of yourself, you're kind of morally <laughs> failing, you know, because you, yeah. you're not ethically, you must be in good shape to take care of people. So it's really bizarre profession I work with that the profession itself is one of the worst at looking after its own. It doesn't want to be seen to be sort of favoring doctors in some way, you know, because because the public wouldn't like that. You know, if we, if we really looked after the doctors... Are we, you know, almost as if you look after the doctors, you're not looking after the patients. It's an either or. And I'm really curious at that. Mm. Um, 
that um, that 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 this this is how you left feeling, at, at least this is my perception of of with it. Now I know that if you had to sort of go you know go onto an official forum and come on, they would name all the resources, all the websites that doctors can go to use <laughs> to look yeah. after themselves, and yeah. and they would say beautiful words, but if you in the profession, there was in the newspaper the other day. A colleague said that if you said to the council that you were medical council that you were struggling, you know, with with the very issue you've raised about being in this environment of suffering and negativity for large parts of your day, if you said to me, "Yeah, I'm struggling," they'd say you can't you can't practice. Yeah, you have to take some time off. Irony, though, isn't it? It's yeah, like, that, you know, is that not? I mean, we're we're living in a world at the minute where, thankfully. Um, knowledge and awareness and discussions about mental health and well-being are, you know, more prevalent than they've ever been before. Mm -hmm. Right now, we, we could discuss uh, the, the merits of that. Maybe that's another conversation. But it's, it's, is it almost like the medical profession are, are like plumbers that don't want to admit they've got a leak at home or something? I mean, is, is there an element of that to it that actually they're trying to protect the the system by saying no, we don't suffer from the stuff that other humans suffer from. <laughs> That's Go lovely. I, I think you, you're right. I think there's an element of that. I mean, we're. Um, I think that's exactly it. Really, we, you're trying to protect the status quo because you know that it's almost like they're afraid that if you you know you pull out one Lego block, uh, you know the whole system will fall down. And in Skiing, one of the things I learned was quite often you're going to be competing with pain and injury. And so you've got to manage that. Mm. But also you are, the chances are, something fairly big will happen and you, you'll miss events, you'll miss um, maybe even part of the season. And that, that happened to me. I, uh, I had a really bad crash at the end of um, one season in Germany, and I, I actually put three of my vertebrae out for alignment and cracked one of them and ended up, you know, being... I actually, I woke up in the safety name and I couldn't feel my legs, so it was a bit concerning. Mm -hmm. And I was stuck in an ambulance and taken down to Munich Hospital. And anyway, luckily enough, um, no damage to the spinal cord. Um, they realigned the vertebrae. And, and the bones healed relatively quickly, but I really struggled. And I remember coming back the following season, having had um, half a year off and done a bit of training, but not nearly as much as I'd want to come back into the World Cup. And I really struggled pre-Christmas. Four World Cups just was way behind where I had finished off the season before. That's hard. So That's hard psychologically as well as physically. I was just going to say, that. I was, I was going to leave a question. Yeah, so when you say you were struggling, was it physically getting back to the level of fitness and, and agility you had, or was it uh, mental fitness and psychological kind of side of, you know? It was both. Or both, yeah. both yeah. So I knew that I wasn't as strong. I actually had to wear a special Kevlar back brace just to protect the, mm. um, the spine where it damaged it. And, and that caused dif discomfort. And, uh, but then it was the fact that, you know, I'd been getting results in the 20s 
the end of the season before and suddenly I was there's usually 80 guys in, in in World Cup and I was back in midfield yeah. mm. 40th and you know that's hard is this sorry is this, is this like post the Olympics or is this what, what well, it's, point it was after one but it, so it's between between the Olympics. The so and, and I had the same thing as the, the swimmer that I told you about you know when I went to my first Olympics I was pretty chuffed you know 70 odd guys at the Olympics and I was 25th um, and uh, top Brit, uh, four Brits and you know only on my second year in World Cup so part of me thought well great and another part of me thought well there's quite a way to go from here to top 10 never mind a medal um, so you can see what you've got to achieve mm. uh, the further you go in up world rankings the better you get the tougher it gets mm. it's as simple as that mm. yeah back then was anyone helping you with the kind of you know mental well-being and psychology of sport I mean these days it's you know it's, it's in every sport right? it's 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 well known about it and we're promoting it more and more and thankfully it's we've got more knowledge of it and it's uh, more prevalent, but back then was that something that was available to you? You know, like recovering from an injury like that and get, trying to get back to form. Um, you know, I'm also thinking you, you've used the analogy of your friend who was a swimmer, and you know, like you said, you're a skier. You're not necessarily alone, as in you've got a team of people helping you get there. But on the day, it's you're it. And you know, it'd be good to hear from you about how mentally tough you need to be to be able to do that, knowing all that you know. You know but is, was, there, was there assistance with that? Was there anything available at that point in your career? There was, there was a bit, but not very much. So, you know, we're talking a while ago now. Yeah. And um, today, uh, high-performance programs in most countries, particularly here in New Zealand, is very good high-performance sports mm. program. Um, and you know, all these areas now have more support. Mm. But the, the mental and psycho psychological um, support was pretty limited. Uh, we, we would get some guy who was studying at university who came along in the Olympic program and you know, might spend a few days with you on a training camp and mm. talk to everyone in the team. But it was pretty limited. And I think back then particularly a lot of it really had to come from you. Um, again, when you asked me what it takes, my view was it, it took everything. So I would do, you know, I was looking at everything that would give me the slightest percentage benefit. Mm. And I um, read about a guy who was a uh, sports psychologist, um, but he did sport, well, they called it sports hypnosis. He did hypnosis. Mm. And he got a bit of a profile because he um, he was working with an Irish boxer. Forgive me, I can't remember his name, but he was going for um, a world title fight, and he was the underdog. But he, he he did that classic boxing thing. He played the media game quite well, and he said, "Oh, I'm using a hypnotist, and I know, you know, I know I'm going to win. I, I know, Mum, I can see it's going to happen." And anyway, he did win. <laughs> so, and I thought, well, that's quite interesting. So I tracked this guy down. But I mean, completely off my own bet. Mm. 
and I went and saw him. And it was fascinating, absolutely fascinating, because the first thing he told me, he said, well, I didn't hypnotize that guy, Hugh, and I can't hypnotize you. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? He said, well, the problem with people like you is you're so focused, I simply can't hypnotize you. I can hypnotize a lot of people, but I can't hypnotize you. But what I can do is I can work with you, l learn about your sport, because I don't know that much about it, but look to achieve you having the right focus when you go out that start game, you're on your own. Mm. And I have to say I was really impressed with him because he spent a lot of time understanding everything I had to go through and all the training and how it worked, how skiing worked. And we worked and worked and worked. And then what he would do is he, he, he I guess, similar process to putting someone into a hypnotic state. But so dark room, talk very quietly to you. And he'd get you into a very deep, relaxed state where you could completely focus on what he was talking about. And then he would talk to you. And I'd do these sessions with him. And then he also made me tapes. You know, this is back in the day when we had tapes. <laughs> And I used to play those tapes and listen to them before I went to sleep at night, before a competition. Yeah. And it's all about getting that right thought process. I don't think I knew exactly what I wanted to be um, as such. I did always do really well in health, um, Hayora and... Um, yeah, I remember always receiving excellences in that class, which was all around like mental, emotional, mm -hmm. physical, spiritual health. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think anything of it at the time, but that is, I guess, me doing really well at something and finding something really interesting. It's, that in itself has kind of followed me through. Mm -hmm. um, although at the time I had no idea, you know, what could even be a career out of that. Yeah. It was just something that I really seem to get a lot out of yeah, yeah. It, there, it definitely came with its challenges you know as young teen parents who um like Dan was kind of building his career at the time he was playing for New Zealand under 21s um at rugby at rugby yep yeah. yeah. um and yeah I mean it definitely kind of impacted on his career um in, in the rugby setting because, you know, he was kind of chucked in the deep end. And I think back then they didn't really understand, um, like, mental health that well. I, I read that, that chapter. I never got to see the manuscript before it actually went to the printers. And it wasn't until I'd read it that I realised that, that mum even then still blamed herself for letting me go that day, for letting me go to the railway yards and this, this accident happened, you know. And I had to come up to her and I said, Mum, let it go. Mum, I'm okay. I've had an extraordinary life and it's going to be even better. So let it go. I said, I'm okay. You've, you've been the best mum you could have ever been, you know. And that... That was very, it was a big part of my life and it was great for her to be able to do that. And she, she told me the story about, you know, you weren't supposed to live past 20 years old. And you know, I asked her why. And she said, well, they said that, um, you know, you either 
the pressures of life would be too great and you were probably going to do away with yourself. And I looked up and I, I cracked up. I laughed and I thought, you know, goodness. And it was one of, the, one of the things I say is that I got the age of 20 years old. They sent me to a psychiatrist because they said I wasn't going to live past the age of 20 years old. They sent me to a psychiatrist. You know, I was in there for three hours with that man. It took me that long to straighten him out. We're all individuals. Each and every one of us have a, have a different pathway. We've, we've had a different life to get to where we are or to a point. And, and from a corporate perspective, you know, with staff and things like that, those are most of the presentations that I do. Mm. It's about trying or getting people to draw on themselves to be the best. You know, so, so many are looking outside and they're thinking they would have, should have, could have. I would have done that, I should have done that, and I could have done that. What I'm trying to get people to think about is I am, I can, I will. You know, mm. I am, I'm the best that I can be. I can achieve anything that I want to, and I will, I will be the best. You know, changing people's mindsets. And then from a business perspective, from a corporate perspective, that's what you want people to do. You want people to come and, I've had employees, you know, you want for that eight hours of a day that they're there with you, 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 as an employer, you want them to be focused. You want them to have that drive and that passion to do the best that they can because their success is your success as the employer. And I do think that from a corporate perspective, a lot of, a lot of corporates actually forget that. They think it's driven at the top and it's actually not. I believe it's driven from the bottom. You have successful people below you then that creates your success. And that's what I found. If I could stimulate, if I could create success with my staff, then that flow, flowed on to me. That created my value. And that's what I try and do. Don't, talk, don't worry about what the person next door is doing. You know, we're too busy, busy focused on what other people are doing rather than having our own backyards and life sorted out. I think technology is a is partly to blame for some of that stuff. You know, many people live their their lives on devices. I hardly use my device. You know, I use it to contact people and things like that. I'm out there because I want to experience, and so many people live their lives through woulda, shoulda, coulda rather than I am, I can, I will experiences. Mm. And so, so I'm a doer, I'm a toucher. If I can touch it, I can feel it, I can smell it, mm -hmm. I can believe it. Yeah. I'm, I'm not always a, a seeing is believing, mm. if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm an experiential person. I wanna, and it's what I used to do with my staff. I want to experience everything that they do. I started right at the bottom. Right, I know what it's like to be practicing on a piece of paper how to sign right, to learn, self-taught. Mm. Yet you go through to own one of the largest companies in the area yeah. in the sign writing industry. Mm. Go figure. I didn't. I was. I couldn't go and get an apprenticeship. Nobody gave me an apprenticeship. Well, I'm an employer guy without legs. What can he do? You know, couldn't drive the truck. 
can't climb ladders, according to them. Can't climb trestles. So what good are you? So I've been, I've had to prove myself all, all my life to myself, but also to other people. You know, you talk about the, the, the not thinking that I was going to live past 20 years old because of people's perceptions. That's what, that's what I've had to deal with all of my life is other people's perceptions, not mine. I'm fine. It's other people's perceptions. It's what they think. I think it starts here. It starts with you. Life starts with you. It doesn't start with your parents. It doesn't, you, well, obviously, you know, you, you're born with your parents and things. But you are the one that creates your, your, your story. You know, we, we, we're, we're brought up and our parents give us their values because that's how we learn or the, the people around us. We learn those values from other people. Then I think we get to a time in our life where we create our own values, whether it be when you expand your family, whether you know, it be business, or you, know, you could be a ruthless businessman, you could be uh, an easy businessman. You, you know what I mean? One yeah. could make a lot of money, one might not make as much. You make all of those choices of how your life goes. And if it's not working for you, Try and realise it early and change. So many of us don't want to change. We don't want to change direction. Life's not easy. The theory of life is, is, is easy. We're born, we live, we die. It's the living part that actually complicates everything. And we tend to be the ones that complicate it. So... Believe in yourself. Believe that you, life's a series of paths. You'll go in this direction, then you'll come to a fork in the road, and you go this way or the other. Who's to say what's right? You've, but make a choice. Don't sit on the fence. Yeah. Don't wait for things to go bad before you go, oh, should have done something about that. Make a choice and always move forward. Right. Look back to learn. Never look back to regret. Yep. And I do think that a lot of people will look back, they live their life in regret. Mm. I have some regrets in my life, but I don't dwell on them. I've learned from those, those mistakes. Mm. Right? And always move forward, always look forward. But it starts with you and it starts about believing in yourself. Believe that success is going to come to you. Don't settle for mediocrity. Try and always stretch yourself, push yourself. And the harder something is, the more I actually want to do it. Can you believe it? I can. But I, that, that's the type of person I am. Yeah. Not everybody's like me. And, no. and we know that. That's just the way I am. Make, make things that suit you. Mm. It's your life. It's not my life. Yeah. It's your life. Live it to the best that you can. Yeah. You know, my, my parents, I miss them so much. I really, really do. Because I wouldn't be the person I am today without them. Mm. But I'm sure that they would be proud.
I'd have to say that it wasn't just the work situation. The relationship played a big part of it. Mm. In fact, the relationship playing, I felt, was very, was very consequential. Right. And happening at the same time mm. was I just felt like I was making mistake after mistake. I was very, I felt very, um, yeah, insecure. Uh, is, that, is that the right word? I felt like, why am I keep making the same mistakes again? That's what it felt like. It felt like making mistakes in my personal life, making mistakes in my professional life. And that, um, look, I guess I had the, and, and I, I'm thinking about this in terms of advice for the people. I was lucky in that I had some savings because I've been working. I was a single guy, you know, so I put some money aside. Mm. So take three months off and live with mum. Mm. You know, it was definitely doable. <laughs> it was more than three months. <laughs> but, uh, but that but, was the plan. But, no, you've, you've got a good point because people... I'm always thinking when I give advice, you know, as I do in my speeches, about am I telling what's really happened or what's really going on? And I, and there, I, yeah, so I do feel like I was forced, the situation, I wish, I love to say that I was, had consciously decided to leave and it was a considered decision, but I really, it was more of an explosion. It was more an explosion, I think. I. It's probably exacerbated by the fact that I have anxiety and have a depression. I'm, you know, um, so those probably those. You know, I'm a person who cogitates, and you know that is anxiety, isn't it? It's kind of it's it's a lot like editing, actually. You know, when you when you you question everything, you revise it, you revise it, shall I have, you know, is this the right way to say things? And, you know, when you have anxiety, that's exactly what you do. You know, you think, oh, I should have said this, I should have said that, they're going to think this, they're going to think that. Um, and so I think that's probably part part of it. Um, and I didn't really, I didn't really, I wasn't diagnosed with um, depression and anxiety until I was 50. Um, so I've spent 50 years of my life wondering what the hell was wrong with me and... Um, uh, and I think part of that is, you know, my dad had a, a, a little sister who was autistic and so, you know, that there was a lot of stigma around mental illness and um, in those days. Um, and Asian cultures don't really, don't they kind of deny it. Right. And so, um, and I, I, I don't think my parents ever thought that I had anxiety and depression but I did have you know it was like you just you know get on and don't have any self-pity and you know you just need to, you're, you're very privileged and I am I am very privileged and very lucky so so why am I depressed you know those so but those I think do exacerbate those feelings of imposter syndrome um and on the, and then on the other hand you know um I'm being more open about that, and it's a little bit like my Asian culture. I'm sort of thinking, well, this is part of me too, mm -hmm. and exploring that. Um, and I think it's interesting there. And I'm actually currently the co-chair of um, the Horror Writers Association's Mental Health Initiative, their Wellness Committee, because we're looking at destigmatizing mental illness in horror. I, horror has been, particularly film, but horror has been an area where we a lot of there's a lot of use of mental illness as a way of um, demonising people. 
Um, and even our language, the way we use language, we still say commit suicide instead of, you know, died by suicide or um, we say someone's psycho or crazy or so the kinds of language that we use and the way we demonize characters. So we're looking at, at using, you know, a moving towards more positive representations of mental illness in horror. So just because you have a mental illness doesn't make you the monster or a villain or necessarily violent or any of those things. It just means that you have an illness. You know, we, we treat things so differently. You know, if you, if you have all sorts of ways, you know, for example, if you have, um, you know, if you, if you have a headache, people say, well, take a, take an aspirin, you know, um, um, because, you know, you'll feel better. But when we talk about mental illness, oh, don't take medication, that's terrible. You know, so we have this, there is a lot of stigma. So um, so in, in, in the Horror Writers Association, we're trying to address that stigma, not through therapy, of course, um, but, but through writing more positive representations of, of mental illness in our horror writing. Um, and also because writing and creativity as we've just said is such a great way to to actually express yourself and actually sort of um it's it's a great way to actually recover because it's it's getting stuff down on paper it's the way of analyzing you know looking at it from a from a point of safety um and it, it's it's very cathartic to be able to write those demons onto the page mm -hmm. and sort of separate yourself from them. So, yeah, so I think the imposter syndrome has a lot to do with that. Um, I'm not saying that everyone who has imposter syndrome suffers from depression or anxiety, but I know that that hasn't helped. And, again, when you get a rejection, how do mm. you deal with that rejection? You know, I mean, that can just really throw you for a loop if you've um, – yeah. And writing is a lot about rejection. Okay, and isolation is an issue, isn't it? Because you know we know when we're when we have anxiety and depression that if you're isolated, it's worse. If you if you don't if you you pull yourself back from the community, it's worse. You know all of those kinds of things, and you become you, it's it's a sort of self fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? You know I'm useless, so therefore I will pull back, and so nobody sees what you're doing. You don't have any any community around you. So it's almost sort of contradictory, isn't it? So almost I have to make sure I go out and get that community, you know, that social connection. And, you know, to a certain extent, this whole Zoom mentality, you know, the non-in-person thing has been kind of helpful um, because you can still be in your safe little living room and also be in a community by Zooming in on panels and you can't see the thousands of people or well, not thousands but you can't yeah. see the other 60 people in the room yeah. or it's a bit like you and I here talking here Steve there's just you and I right yeah. um but maybe some other people might watch this and I can pretend that that it's just you and you and I so there's yeah. that yeah um so there is a, a way of having community with with some safety you mm. know mm. um so this whole virtual world of community has been helpful for me a little sure. bit okay. um but yeah I do I you know I I when I'm at conferences if I feel overwhelmed I go back to my room I scroll through the internet for pictures of puppies um okay. you know um yeah. I will go for a walk I do the things that I need to do to feel 
more connected, uh, more, no, more grounded is the word. Um, and then I, but I try not to isolate myself too much because I think that community is how I've succeeded because, well, as I said before, community is just so vital for me as a writer. And, um, but also it's part of the problem <laughs> when you're anxious, when you have social anxiety, it's like, oh. Um, so I always break out in hives when I go to a conference. Right. It's just, I just have to live through it. I just have to get through it. How did it feel? How did you know well, that there was something there? I think it was just there? I'm one of oh, those kids normal. that just was, you know, overthought things and, you know. Right. Um, and also I've got a I've got a mole on my shoulder. It's kind of a, um, it's an Asian it's a Chinese thing, you know, you carry the burdens of the world on your shoulder, you know, snake, I'm born in the year of the snake, so, you know, we're overthinkers. Okay. Um, so there's all these kind of cultural aspects that sort of play into it as well. And, of course, my dad, you know, coming from a family where his own sister, you know, had a mental illness and, you know, at the time there was, you know, shock treatments were being discussed and that kind of thing. So it's, it's, it was, so he had his own concerns around that because he lost his sister. She was only 12. Um, and so he still was traumatised about that, obviously. Um, so, you know, there is that. So they just, I don't think they, they ignored it. They just didn't see it in the same in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't really I didn't have a name for it. I just thought it was me. Just you, yeah. Yeah. Well, it, and it kind of is. It is. You know, it? Yeah. <laughs> and um and um and I did a lot of running for a lot for many years and I think that that actually helped. So when so for for a long time I sort of held it at bay by running because I would run every day or every other day. So you know when you're physically active that helps with anxiety and depression. Um, it's meditation on the hoof. You know I just be thinking. You know mm, it's mm. it's time out. It's meditation yeah. through through movement and also I had a big social network through running. Um, you know, I would run with friends and people and talk and chat. And I'm a very slow runner, just like I'm a slow writer. So, you know, it was great. You're in the back of the pack and you're just enjoying the day. And um, so four hours of chatting, you know, that's social time as well. So that was possibly quite therapeutic. And then when um, and then when I injured myself and wasn't able to run, I really fell. I really, um, really got very isolated and that was when I was diagnosed with um with anxiety and depression and I so I've learned a bit from that and I mean what obviously therapy is is individual and and you have to see your own doctor and get your own advice but for me um I know that writing helps me and going out for walks helps me and scrolling puppies on the internet helps me did the diagnosis itself help you like to understand yourself and one, and then once you understood a bit more, yeah. able to work out what you needed to do to manage it? Yeah, I, I came up a bit of, against a bit of stigma, um, you know, when you start saying you have it and, you know, you know, I know people will say, oh, she's that woman with anxiety and depression, not she's that writer or um, mm. so I just, so, you know, so I am open about it because I think shared awareness is, is helpful, you know, yeah. Um when you say, oh, I suffer from anxiety and depression in horror writing circles, you're amazed about how many people come out of the woodwork and say, yes, and I, I use writing to to help me process this, this, some of this stuff as well. So, 
Because um, yeah. you've written something on that, I've read. Or it was you did you had some conversations with a lot of writers about. Yeah, well, as part of the Headlands project. That's, um, that's the one. Sorry. Yeah. Yes, I, I um, and and I was the first to bring a panel on. You know. Um, um, horror and and mental illness and horror into um, mm. into the horror writing community, international horror writing community, and I think that's become a standard now because it's a big discussion. There are a lot of elements to to look at, you know, addiction, horror, and that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's mm. um, I'm proud of that work. Um, I think we've got a long way to go in horror because it is an area where. Um, people have been stigmatised and some of the portrayals of uh, villains are often, you know, psychopathic, you know, demon, de demons and, you know, serial killers. And, you know, there are a lot of, um, lot of writers lean into some of those things. So we need to be careful about how, they, how we address those. And we've got insular ideas as well as great progressive ideas. So I want to use New Zealand and... You know, I just, yeah, horror is the place. Um, I, I, I've just got this opportunity to explore all of these unique, this our unique perspective here down under um, with also my Asian culture thrown in and um, the fact that I, am you know, have issues with anxiety and depression and lots of other people feel those things. So I feel like I've got, now I, I feel less that imposter syndrome of is it my story and what have I got to say because clearly I have got things to say that must also impact other people mm. because if I'm frightened by them, other people must also be frightened by them. Unless I'm totally weird, it's possible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is an issue, isn't it? And look, that is what sensitivity readers are for and research and beta readers um, are for. Um, I think it, it is a tricky area. Because people, you know, are, we're talking about own stories and things like that. Um, and it is a tricky area. Thankfully, New Zealand has the Bill of Rights, um, which allows artists and creatives to, to express themselves in ways, you know, uh, um, as they like, providing it's not hate speech or anything like that. But I do think we have a responsibility to look very carefully at our work and make sure that we've researched it and, and had a number of readers read it and make sure that things are not, you know, I don't mean sanitising, um, but I mean being authentic um, and careful about how we put work out there. And again, this is the same issue with, with mental illness, you know, that some people with mental illness may be violent. But it is not a given, you know, and so that's been and, and and that's the stigma that has come with um that has come with in the past with with horror and mental illness. So yes, we do need to be careful about how we address our, you know, how what what we address in our writing and how we approach it. They're all in there, right? And the journalists are watching and 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 you know creating and facilitating that. Fueling it. And then you've got the more um, sort of, you know, less so the Instagram and uh, stuff, but Facebook is another platform where people, I mean, when I put stuff on Facebook, I have someone in my office that sits and moderates and takes out the stuff. Not that's critical to me per se, but the language they use is appalling. It is absolutely vicious language. They will call into, you know, they will 
attack me for my lack of competency. They will, they will attack me for mental health. They will, seriously. And so my office tries to hide those. So at least it's not a complete, you know. Mm-hmm. You know the public were rapidly turning off us. Uh, and we were saying, well, can we afford just to let this go or should we do a circuit breaker? That was effectively the judgment. Uh, and we decided to do the circuit breaker. Um, and you're quite right to say, yeah, but from the outside, it looked like you didn't have a clear plan to what you were going to do when you got in there. Uh, and um, that's a fair that's a fair criticism, right? You know, there were elements that were clear in our head, but the but there weren't there are other elements that weren't. You know, there's one of the criticisms that we get from that period was that we just tore up the you know, policy program that had been set in place. Well, the policy program that was set in place was reflective of a pre-COVID environment. So it all needed to be reassessed uh, anyway uh, in very, very tight uh, time frame. So it was a, it was a remarkably um, uh, unique uh, and high-tension environment. But ultimately, you do what you think is the right thing. Uh, and um, just in our case, it didn't, it didn't work. Uh, and um, and I, you know, that sits with me for the rest of my life because I made a call, I felt it was the right call, uh, and didn't see the um, unraveling of my mental health uh, in the equation. Of course, I didn't. If I knew, if I knew that that was going to sit, be sitting around the corner, mm. I would have compl- made a completely different uh, decision. But I didn't know, mm. uh, and I uh, was highly um, uh, energised by the opportunity to actually be the leader of the National Party and assist us through that change. And, you know, the initial media reaction, the initial polling reaction was very positive. It was horror of a, of a complete uh, mental health breakdown, right? And, and so it was about getting through the day as opposed to... Um, reflecting on legacy uh, or uh, regret that um, I couldn't do the job that I had uh, always wanted. Uh, That came later. But at the time, uh, when you're in the middle of the, you know, horror of it all falling apart in your head, um, uh, frankly, you're just trying to get through each day. Like, I was so struck by that uh, documentary that Robin Malcolm did, and I got you know, I was asked to participate in that about anxiety, uh, because they showed footage of me doing one of my last press statements, press conferences, and I looked appalling, absolutely appalling, and I had never seen I'd never seen any footage of when I was the leader, because once you're the leader, it's so. Um, as every former leader knows, um, it's non-stop, right? It just goes, you know, 18 hours a day. And so you don't have time to sit and reass- look at how your media performances are gone because it's just your next one's there mm. and then the next one. So you're just going non-stop, right? And so I'd never seen what I looked like. And then I saw it and uh, on that documentary and I was, I was, you know, I was pretty shocked actually um, around, you know, the physical deterioration that was that was matching the mental deterioration, um, but look, I, I at the time, it was so acute uh, and so debilitating uh, that I wasn't sitting there going, 
I'll if I step aside, this is me. Mm. I mean, I the the pain was so overwhelming. And that's the other thing that I, you know, I'd never experienced anything like this before. I'd have these challenges at Zespri and challenges at Fonterra, big challenges in terms of botulism, some false botulism scares. Um, and at worst, I'd had a bit of disturbed sleep. Full stop. Never had it. Never had to know what an anxiety attack was. Never experienced one in my life before. Uh, and they were just basically non-stop. And what I had not, you know, looking back, I... I had no understanding about the pain of them. Like the physical pain of mental health is something that I um, you never forget. Um, and uh, it's pretty brutal. Well, it's more than brutal. Mm. And I just at the end of the at the end of it, I just simply wanted the pain to stop. It wasn't this is the end of my career, this is, you know. Uh, shame on my family or anything like that, you know, that um, it was just can the pain stop? Uh, and, um, you know, I was essentially given the permission to walk away from the fire and that's what it felt like. Uh, and then, of course, uh, just bone-deep fatigue and you slept and slept and slept and slowly um, recovered. Uh, and that's a journey, right? That's that's the other thing with this is, you know, when you when you get to that point um, and you walk away, it's not like flicking a switch. You don't you don't sort of wake up the next morning and say, "Oh, that's good, I'm fine now." Um, you know, it it is a profound experience, and so you, in my case, you need to do some you know deep. Uh, reflection of work to you know rebuild your resilience from that, and that's a work in progress from my perspective. Um, but what I have decided to do is be open about it mm. because, mm. and you know, Michelle, to her credit, um, when we were talking about it, she said, "Well, pretty much everyone knows what's happened. They can sort of see mm. that you've fallen over here, mm. and so let's just, you know, we don't, you know, you don't hunt the." story but if people ask you just say this is what it's like and mm -hmm. you know I think in a small way that's been useful. Do you find it hard to articulate exactly how it felt and how it came about? Uh, the, the, the reason I ask is I've got a daughter who you know, at a young age suffered from anxiety and I thought I understood what anxiety was. I had no idea until I suffered from it myself mm. but I, f I found it very hard to kind of describe that to other people what that felt like and and what what triggered it or what led to it um yeah because i think you know when you talk about building resilience trying to understand how things come about helps you spot the kind of signs or symptoms that might be leading towards that but it's, it's do you find it hard to put your finger on that or um i don't find it hard to describe what it felt like um, and I don't, and I do have the capacity to uh, uh, identify the familiar early signs uh, now. Um, so I guess the, the challenge is working out, for me the big challenge, is 
so now what? You know, um, I had rebuilt myself quite well, and Chris had given me agriculture and climate change front bench, uh, and I think we will probably win. It'll be a scrap, but I think we'll probably win. And I couldn't do it because I just could, in my deep gut, felt that I just didn't have the capacity and energy to do 100 and something hours a week. Um, and I have found myself increasingly frustrated with some of the more uh, toxic comments that get directed to you as an MP, not about my performance, but about politics generally. You know, you're out and about and people come up and let rip about, you know, their views on the world. And historically, even if I disagreed with people, I would get energy from that. And I am, you know, increasingly frustrated uh, by that. Uh, and so you look at the way politics is heading, I'm a collaborative politician, I think, rather than a combative one. Um, my own resilience. And I thought, you know what? I think it's time to just step aside and let someone else have a go at this. Because I don't want to be back in that position. Uh, and I'm not entirely sure that I wouldn't be. Uh, and so because I have that familiarity of that, you know, because I've walked in that journey and in that fire, I do have a sense of what that feels like when it starts again. And, um, you know, I just don't want to go back there. And, and so are you, are you, what you're saying there, Todd, is that you feel that if you stayed on, you had the front bench role, that that would potentially have. those the kind of work ethic that you need, the hours, the time yeah. away from home, all of that kind of stuff could yeah. lead to another I think it could have, yeah. Uh, and then when you overlay the sort of um, my sort of sense of where politics is heading and my dislike of that and sort of increasing frustration in terms of interactions with people who hold those views, I'm thinking this is not a particularly healthy combination. And I think you've got to be all in. Now, you could, I could have stayed on as the MP for Bay of Plenty and not sat on a front bench, uh, but I feel that you're, you're actually not doing the job served you know I think if you've reached that point um, where that you know you are finding um, elements of the job frustrating uh, then I think just staying around to experience you know the good stuff and just sort of you know middling along I don't think that's right for the Bay of Plenty uh, or a community like this you know this is a big city right it needs a senior minister sitting around the table and if it's not going to be me then I need to make way for somebody else who in time can do that. Uh, and that's important. Um, so, yeah, it's been, it, it, it's, it's been quite uh, a journey, as I'm sure it has for you, right? Once, once you have experienced it it, it, it does change your life perspective around, you know, what's important to you and how to manage yourself through, uh, um, you know, to avoid it happening again. Yeah. Um, do I regret the fact that I had mental health uh, issues? Of course I do. Um, 
uh, you know, who wouldn't not want to have gone through the fire? But the thing is that I did. Uh, and so the, for me, the way, um, you know, I intend to live the rest of my life uh, is to be, is to have gratitude about the fact that, um, you know, I have fantastic uh, loving family uh, and friends. And even though it was a hideous experience, I know that that has had a positive impact on other people. Um, because the very media that I was attacking before, social media, allows an intimacy with individuals that um, and connectedness that just doesn't exist normally, right? So I have hundreds of messages on my uh, phone from people who I don't know who just got online and messaged me with thanks about being so open and then telling me their own story. Hundreds and hundreds of them. I don't know these people. Most of them would preface with, I, I vote Labour, but da 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 da. Mm. Uh, and so you, you, you realise actually, um, you know, I have been through the fire, but um, there's a lot to be thankful for. And it has changed me as a person. I think I am more empathetic. I always thought I was empathetic, but it's like anything, right? You don't truly understand unless you've lived it. Uh, it's not a criticism. It's just um, now when you meet people that have had challenges in terms of and are having challenges in terms of mental health, there's a relatability and an understanding and a connection that otherwise wouldn't have been there. And that's a powerful thing to have that, be able to have those connections with people. And in a small way, uh, maybe, you know, assist in being someone that they feel that they can talk to about. So um, it's absolutely changed my life and um, bizarrely in a good way. Uh, and, you know, you're talking legacy, right? Um, you know, it's not for me to define it, but I suspect um, it'll be more related to this experience than any other thing that I did in the nine years that I was there. Um, and... That's pretty powerful. I would like to continue to support, um, uh, you know, mental health conversations more broadly, um, but I'm conscious of the fact that I am just one of hundreds of thousands. Yes, someone who was pretty public, uh, but um, you know, we're lots of us are going through this journey, and so if there is a way to assist in that context, then I'm open to it. Uh, but it's, I suspect it's more likely to be in the space of what we're doing here, is that honest conversations with people that ask, as opposed to any sort of determined or deliberate um, role. Um, but, you know, we'll see. Well, my mum's got a background in nursing, so she picked a lot of this stuff up when I was about three years old. Um, but it never really became a problem until I was at school. Um, just OCD getting more severe and with the anxiety um, it started to affect my mood like after school hours and um, just being angry and anxious and upset all the time uh, just because being undiagnosed at that point 
it meant that I struggled because my brain obviously processes and learns things different to other people's brains. So when I was in a classroom and had a teacher teaching me a certain way um, to how my brain isn't really like uh, react to that kind of learning, it was stressful because it was extra pressure um, just because I wasn't really retaining any information and it was holding me back. Um, yeah, so I guess that's like how it affected me, but it was more so as I started to get older in school, like eight or nine, that's when it was like a real issue because it got in the way of making friends. And then also as like word got about that I had Tourette's and OCD, then people in the class would, you know, try and make me tick or try and trigger my OCD. So then that became a big thing. And then in the end, I got taken out of school, both my um, the child uh, younger than me, the middle child and I, we started homeschooling. And then that's when I started to get out of my shell again a bit more. I uh, started to learn the way that I learn, our brains uh, learn. So, yeah, yeah, that was cool. So, I mean, mum being a nurse and, and being able to spot things early on was probably a, an advantage because I imagine there's, there's a lot of people who would be on the spectrum and just not know it. Mm -hmm. um, the amount of people I meet every day, like <laughs> my mum and I always laugh because we can just see someone walking and we'll like self-diagnose them on the spot like yeah, we're definitely on the spectrum <laughs> just the way they're walking. But no, yeah, the amount yeah. of people that they have no idea that uh, the, the reason that they struggle or they can't focus is literally just because their brain is wired a little different. Yeah, um, yeah. But, yeah, it's just, I think, a lack of overall knowledge um, on how it actually affects people instead of just the stereotypes can have a lot to do with it. But I think these days it's becoming a whole lot more um, well-known. I wouldn't say common because it's just more people are picking up that they have things as opposed to more people having ADHD or OCD, it's just people actually realising it in themselves. Yeah, so an increased awareness of, of it yeah. and knowledge of it so that, like you say, it's not necessarily that there's more of it. We just mm -hmm. know it exists. Yeah, exactly. And knowing is, <clears throat> I would imagine, is, is half of the mm. battle, if that's the right word. I suppose if you don't know yeah. that your child is, has, has got a, you know, a disorder of they any kind, then just... how do you help support and manage them? Yeah, and also exactly... Um, not acknowledging what it is, then you can't really treat it if you like. Um, yeah. Yeah. Or, or understand. Yeah, exactly. Just understand. Both my parents, both of them are on the spectrum and when they were younger, it like affected either their learning or their ability to cope and socialise and stuff like that in school. But back yeah. then it was considered behaviour um, yeah. or stupidity or something like that if yeah. they're not learning the way that they were being taught um mm. but yeah I'm so glad I'm on the spectrum because I look at um people my age that have literally like molded into what you're supposed to be in society like and it's just so boring like oh my gosh like I can actually allow myself and be comfortable myself to be quirky and weird and like laugh and have a good time with my friends um but hurt someone my age that might like be like, oh no, that's too weird. Like to be that open with my friends, like you know what I mean. Like I just love it. I love having a different perspective on life because I'll just like I'll I might be outside staring at like an ant or a moth or something, and I'll just like be staring at it for like ten minutes. I'm just like amazed by it. But then someone else that might not be on the spectrum.
That's oh, yeah. it. Or, <laughs> or they might not yeah. even see it. Yeah, I just love how I um, see the world um, and how I process color and things around me. It's just so much more bright and happy to me. I guess I'm naturally a happy person, but a lot of that has to do with, you know, how hard it was growing up with being on the spectrum and stuff. And now that it's nowhere near as complicated, I'm just happy to be alive. Yeah, and I mean, like, obviously you were treated different too in school, not just by students, but very much by teachers as well. I think uh, when I was at school and definitely when my parents and you guys were at school, there was a, a very much a lack of understanding and compassion because people would view it as behaviour. Um, yeah, but definitely in, like, people my age because I knew that I was different, but I didn't really think that there was anyone else that was like me, if you like. So it was very much a um, isolation kind of thing. And I think that's why in school um, I did kind of creep into my shell, um, just having students and teachers not understand. And so they'd treat you different or they'd get frustrated if you weren't actually learning. Um, and because I was so shy and I was like a goody two-shoes, like, I would hate to um, have all eyes on me or the teacher pull me aside and get angry at me. Like, I'd hate that. But um, obviously, um, because I wasn't able to learn anything and um, retain anything, it, it did frustrate, like, people around me. Um, but now that I know everything, I, um, I don't know, I just, like, love myself so much more because... Um, not many people my age or any age can like understand themselves and embrace themselves and actually like are glad to be who they are. Um, and I also like, you know, I've I've got a lot of people that are a bit younger than me um, that also have the same struggles that are able to look up to me and be like, oh, you're like, she actually likes who she is. Um, but I didn't have that. So the fact that I'm able to do that, like, for other people mm. is, like, really cool. Concentration, definitely. Um, processing is a big thing. Um, and just retaining information. Um, yeah, just, like, by the time mm. you retain something, you've forgotten again, <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah. Mm. So you can see how that would be a massive problem at school. Yeah, and everyday life, trying to have conversations yeah. with people. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so what about, if you don't mind sharing, what about yeah. some of the other symptoms that yeah, like um, with, with Tourette's and so again, maybe I'll ask a question first before that. So um, ASD mm -hmm. or autistic spectrum disorder, is that right? I've got that right? Something like that? Yeah. I've got, I don't so, <laughs> and, and so is that something separate or is that <clears throat> what the umbrella under which yeah. Tourette's and OCD come under? I think... Because everything on the spectrum is connected anyway. I haven't met someone that has ADHD that doesn't have uh, maybe like an anxiety tick or somebody with OCD that doesn't have ADHD and someone, you know, and so on. It's all the spectrum and it's, it's this one big like blur, like this one merge and there's so many parts of the spectrum that it's not like a category but people have to kind of categorize it so that you can get a diagnosis and things like that, break it down a little. Um, yeah, for me, I guess it is like my personality. Um, somebody might 
um, choose to be quiet when they've met someone new. But for me, I have to go up and hi, I'm Sophie, what's your neighbour? Um, that would be like um, the ASD side of me because I kind of don't care and I want to get out there where someone else might think, oh, that's like socially a bit weird or, you know. So, uh, But I, I like having that, um, that confidence that comes with it. Uh, when I was a bit younger, it was like really bad because I didn't know like lines of boundary. And this is for everyone with ASD. Um, sometimes people learn like I did what what lines you don't cross in society. Um, and But a lot of people don't ever learn those lines. Um, for me, when I was like 14, 13, 14, like I wouldn't know when to stop talking or when to... Uh, stop being weird or things like that but it did get me in a lot of trouble because obviously friends and stuff like that I couldn't really make friends that weren't on the spectrum who also didn't know those boundaries um, but I'm actually really grateful for those experiences because now I can still uh, you know get through everyday life um, fine when it comes to social stuff because I do know those boundaries so I don't you know, it's not, I don't feel restrained because as a person, I never restrain myself, but I'm able to like keep myself calm and cool through like um, experiences in life where I have to have like a professional side to me. I think if I was trying to like explain to a child, like obviously the odd thing that kind of knocks you down, um, you have time to build yourself back up. But when it's every single day, um, it's keeping you at like a certain level of being like knocked down, you know. Um, yeah, and the impacts can be like crazy. Like obviously that added to my anxiety and when my anxiety's worse, it makes my OCD worse, which makes my turrets worse because it's all like connected. Um, yeah, it got to the point where we had to be taken out of school, obviously. Um, but yeah, like very isolating um, I couldn't sit and eat lunch with anyone because kids, I'd sit down and then they'd all stand up and leave. I'd like to take a moment to talk about one of our sponsors. I'm really pleased to announce that we have Sharp New Zealand as a sponsor. And it's great to have Sharp on board because as a customer, I can speak about their products and services from personal experience. And it feels good to be able to endorse and recommend a company because of the level of satisfaction we have regarding the services they provide. And across my businesses, We've certainly been impressed with the care and collaboration we've experienced in our dealings with Sharp. It's certainly a brand that we trust. Sharp has a long history of creating breakthrough products designed to meet the needs of people living in New Zealand. Sharp's leadership in technology innovation ensures it's at the forefront of the pack, providing business solutions from printing and photocopying to interactive meeting solutions and ICT phone systems. No matter where you are or what size your organization, whether you're large or small, Sharp New Zealand can provide their services to you nationwide. If you're looking to upgrade your technology or renew your photocopier leases, talk to your local Sharp team or visit the website at sharp.net.nz.